Good morning. That's pathetic. I'm going to try harder while I preach than you just tried to say good morning, if you don't mind. I'm not even going to give you a second chance to do it. <clears throat> You'll take it anyway. I want to start out, uh, since that crowd participation failed a little bit, let's try something else. Uh, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Not yet. No one tried. Raise your hand if you prefer new things rather than old things, just in general. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to give you an example. Do you like new things rather than old things? Whoa. I have to erase something in my sermon. All right, raise your hand if you prefer old things rather than new things. Some of you didn't raise your hand. I can't even tell. Um, It looks like generally my suspicion... You can put your hand down, son. Thanks. Uh, Looks like... Turn it up. It says Mrs. Reese. Let's turn that around. Thanks. Uh, My suspicion was that in general, most of us prefer new things rather than old things, right? That's, that's the general idea, uh, usually no matter what it is. And so especially if we're thinking about material things, you think about uh, clothes. None of you want to go and find, uh, if you could get whatever you wanted, you'd prefer new clothes to old clothes. Uh, when you're thinking about transportation, you want to, uh, to get a car. Would you rather have a brand new car or an old car or a way old car. Unless you're like an old school car guy, you want a new car, right? That's just the way that we work. Uh, Plumbing. (laughs) We don't have to go there, I guess. Uh, Hygiene. You prefer the era of deodorant rather than the era of neodorant. (laughs) Nothing. That's that's who we are. I, I go in my house. Kitchen appliances washing machines. Most of us do not want to turn back the clock. Probably the best evidence of that is our phones, our telephones, our cell phones, our smartphones. We have supercomputers in our pocket. I doubt that very many of you would like to return to the era of the flip phone, as amazing as those were. I remember the first time I ever got a text uh, from my wife. We were dating and, and I didn't even know that my phone could do that. I just got a beep and looked down at it, and it was a message from Janine. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> this is a new world. But, but flip phones once were amazing, right? That you could put your phone in your pocket. Before that, uh, I doubt anyone's still uh, hanging out with the bag phone to plug into your car. My kids hadn't even seen uh, what they call, they still call this a home phone. We bought a house a year ago that was built in 1979, and we walked into the kitchen, and there was a phone hanging on the wall, and, and Zeb, my, he was six, he just looked at it like, Dad, what does this do? <laughs> <laughs> pulled it off, and like, well, see, it's, it's a phone, you punch the buttons. He was amazed by that. What would he have thought if he saw the phone that I grew up in my house with, where you stick your number in a little hole? And you turn it. Remember that? Yeah, those are amazing. And they even have one worse than that. I've never actually seen one of these used, but I used to see it on the Andy Griffith show. Um, he would, the sheriff would walk over, and he, there was a box on the wall, and he'd pick up this cone, 
and he would put the cone to his mouth and something to his ear, and he would just call for some woman who was always there. I think her name was Sarah, maybe? Like, Sarah, can you, can you patch me into so-and-so? And they even had part of it. You could listen in to what other people were talking about. Do you want to go back to that? I don't. don't think that's possible. Technology material things. The reason we don't want to give all of those things up really is because with each new advance, the main function they perform is that the new thing makes our lives easier, right? And in fact, there are, there are a few occasions when if the new thing does not make your life easier, then we go back to the old thing. That's just how we work. It's, it's easy to see that with technology and Stuff, but when we're talking about ideas, when we're talking about philosophy or morality or religion, things get a little bit more complicated. And this is the position that the Christians were in, the Christians who were first reading this book of Hebrews as a sermon. Whether they had converted to the Christian faith out of a Jewish family or out of Gentile paganism and idol worship, whatever they did, their newfound faith in Christ, wherever they came from, was making their lives harder. This new faith made life difficult. And they were not like us. We're, think, we're talking 60s AD. So if, if I asked in this room, if I had everyone, and we would never do this, don't worry, but if I had everyone stand up and give their testimony, how they came to faith in Jesus Christ, probably more than 50% of us, that might even be a low number, our story would probably begin that the first time we ever heard the gospel was in our homes, right? Isn't that where you're supposed to start? A lot of us, I grew up in a Christian home, <laughs> then I was very bad. Then I came back to Jesus, glory, right? That's, that's my story. That, that's a lot of our stories. But their testimonies didn't work that way because they hadn't even had time historically to grow up in a Christian home. Most of these Christians probably were first-generation Christians and had left their family and their society and their cultural beliefs behind. Their moral standards, religious practices. This caused a radical change and made them social outcasts. We don't get a lot of information into who these people are, the, the context, their background, but one of the few sneak peeks that we get we can see in Hebrews chapter 10. I'll sneak ahead just a little bit. Forgive me, Dylan. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 36. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property." since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Does that sound like your Christian life? 
I remember when I became a Christian, the first response to my faith was that they tore down my house and threw me in prison, that they publicly humiliated me. That is not most of our stories. Public shame, bloodshed, financial ruin. But for them, that was their life. The new was not translating into better, at least among all the categories by which we would determine quality of life. And now you can see why these Christians in this situation needed this letter of Hebrews, which if I could sum up so far the point, uh, sum up Hebrews 1 through 8 so far, what's the point of Hebrews? I could sum up the message in three words. You might even know what they are. Jesus is what? Better. Jesus is better. That word is used more times in the letter of Hebrews than the entire rest of the New Testament. Jesus is better. And, and we can relate to these people, even if we're not suffering in such an extreme way. We know that even under the low-grade persecution that, most, that many of us might experience for our faith, the easiest time to doubt the truth of Christianity is when you are being opposed for it. That's the easiest time to start to ask those questions when things are going sideways, when your Christianity is demanding more of you, is causing more harm in your life than you would like. And so the author of Hebrews has been making week in and week out the case for the superiority of Jesus Christ in every way to these religious practices and beliefs that the Jewish Christians had left behind. And he tells them, and I still believe God is telling us today, that no matter what Christianity may cost you in this life, the blessings exceed the cost by far. So let's brief, briefly re, retrace this argument. We're backing up a little bit because... Uh, if you're like me, we do little chunks at a time, and we just come in, and a lot of us, we have, we have no context for what's been going on in the book of Hebrews. So I want to catch us up just so we're in the middle of this. And so his argument so far has gone like this. The first step of the argument in chapters 1 and 2, he told us that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the angels. And you know, if you've read the Bible, angels are awesome, right? They show up and they look kind of like men, but they're also shimmering wide and gleaming. And the human response every time in the Bible an angel shows up is people fall on their face to worship them because they are awesome. No matter how awesome you might think you are, when you show up, nobody hits the ground typically, right? Angels aren't like that. The angel always has to say, get up. I'm just an angel. Don't worship me. But the angels were held in such a high regard. They're the ones who actually wrote the law of Moses on the tablets. They're the ones who are holy creatures. They go in and out of the presence of God. Angels are amazing. And the author says, Jesus is better than the angels. They aren't Jesus. They are not the only begotten son in fact, he tells us even further that the angels worship Jesus. He's the person that they fall down before, that they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. 
He is the eternal king. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And in fact, he is the creator of angels. But the author says something amazing in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that the angels don't just serve Jesus. He says that they also serve us, you and me. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's us. The angels serve us. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus also, the second part of his argument, is that Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Moses, the one who led God's people out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, and led them to the promised land. This is the guy that when his staff hits the Nile River, it turns into blood. When he raises it over the Red Sea, the waters part. I have never done that. That is awesome, right? Moses is amazing. The most amazing thing he ever did, probably uh, many of us have overlooked, to me the most amazing thing Moses ever did is that uh, after the incident of the golden calf, he gets mad, he throws the tablets, he goes back up, and what Moses says to God, God says, I'm done with those people. I'm going to kill them all, and I'm going to start over with you. You're the new Abraham, Moses. And you know what Moses says? He says, don't kill them, kill me. That's the greatest thing Moses ever did. And it sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? But Moses is not Jesus. Moses was a sinner. He didn't even get to go into the promised land. And the author of Hebrews tells them that he never led them into the rest, the Sabbath rest that their hearts truly needed. They were not allowed to rest from their works because of Moses. In fact, the law that he gave them, as we'll see today, was not obeyed by God's people, and so they did not overcome their sin through Moses. And the last part that we've been dealing with, the the third argument that he's been, been working on in Hebrews is that Jesus is better than Aaron. And by Aaron, he means the entire uh, process of, the, of worship, the Levitical priests. The priests would have been the most important, the high priest, the most important people among all of Israel. He's the guy who goes in with all of the, the 12 gems on his chest to go in to bear their sin on his shoulders. He's the only one who one time a year gets to go into the actual presence of God, the Holy of Holies, and he was the mediator. The high priest is the one who stood between the sinful people and the holy God and said, we can stay here. We can be together because of the work that the priest does on their behalf. But the priests were sinners. They weren't just offering sacrifices for the people, but for themselves. And the guilt of the people's sin was never fully removed because they kept offering and offering and offering sacrifices. And so we were told in Hebrews that Jesus became a different kind of priest, a priest that never sins, a king priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's probably now a household name in sojourn families. Oh, you know, Melchizedek, 
named our dog Melchizedek because he's so crucial to this story. But Melchizedek's priesthood is a priesthood that lasts forever. This priest doesn't die. He never sinned. And this priest, Jesus Christ, never stops interceding for us before God the Father. And so now in chapter 8, the author of Hebrews starts to drill deeply into what exactly makes Jesus a better priest than the Levites? What makes him a better mediator, a stand between, between God and man? And why is Jesus the last priest that we'll ever need? Or maybe more directly, why is Jesus worth all of this suffering that your faith in him has brought you, and namely these people, by rejecting the Old Testament order. We now come to the peak of his argument, and the peak of his argument is that Jesus' priesthood is taking place in a heavenly temple. So we see this beginning in chapter 8. I'm going to read the first six verses. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." So there are three big ideas here. I realized at the end of this sermon that it was blocked into three and three and three. I'm not trying to do like a baby boomer cute thing where everything lines up numerically and all the letters spell something. Totally not doing that. But hey, God is triune, so this is just what's here. So don't, don't think my threes are cute. There are three big ideas here as to why Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood, or why it's better than the law of Moses. And the first, the first thing that he mentions is the better temple. In verses 1 and 2, he's saying Jesus is serving in a better temple. And the idea there is that on the earth, the Levitical priests are serving in a man-made temple. Their human hands set this up. But Jesus is serving in a heavenly temple. Moses saw a picture God showed him a picture of the throne room of the real temple of God in heaven, and God said, here, build something like this. Here are the specifications. But Jesus is actually before the very throne of God, so his location makes it better. It's a better temple. The second idea is that Jesus offers a better offering, and he hardly goes into this at all. He just says that word uh, in verses 3 and 4. He says that Jesus has to have, all priests have to have something to Offer. And so we're going to see this later in Hebrews that we know that what Jesus offers, the Levitical priests were offering a spotless animal 
all the time, Jesus Christ was offering his spotless self once for all. So he gives a better offering. And then the last part that comes up at the end in verse 6 is the idea of a better covenant. Jesus is a better priest because he is working under a better covenant. So the first two items, the heavenly temple and the better offering, oddly enough, I'm going to leave those alone today. I can't really touch that because, don't misunderstand me here, um, the Bible is inspired by God, it is the Word of God, but it is also the words written by human beings. And so God does not, God does not eliminate the way men think when He inspires them to write the Scriptures. So here's what happens. Um, if you were a man, you probably do this. Sometimes men start a thought, they're going down a path, and then they think of something else, and so they go over here, like there's a rabbit, and so they go chase the rabbit, and they chase the rabbit for a while, and they're like, oh yeah, what was I talking about? And then you come back to this thing over here, okay? That's what the author of Hebrews does. Under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm not saying the Bible is simply a human document, but God uses the human mind and language. That's why all the books written by different guys are written in a different way. We've already seen him do this once in chapter 5. Remember, he started talking about Melchizedek in chapter 5, and then he stopped, and he chased this rabbit, and he says, you know what? I want to talk about Melchizedek, but I don't know if I can even do that because you guys are still milk drinkers, and you're not meat eaters. And so for almost two chapters, kind of went off on that idea. And then when he gets to the very end of chapter 6 and starts chapter 7, it's like, okay, back to Melchizedek. That's what I want to talk about. And so that's sort of what he is doing here. So I'm going to um, lay off of the idea of the better temple. That will come up next week in Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to lay off of the better offering. That shows up in chapters 9 and 10. I'm going to save those for a better preacher, but today the JV team is here to chase rabbits, and that is actually something I love to do, not literally chase rabbits, figuratively. Uh, but before we get to the big rabbit, which is this idea of the better covenant, we have to address uh, a smaller rabbit. It's actually not a smaller rabbit. It is a beautiful principle that he lays out here, just barely mentions it, that helps us understand how the entire Old Testament works. I love this illustration that he gives. So let's back up to verse 4 and 5. I want to read those again. It says, Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So he says the priesthood, this whole system of the tabernacle, the priests, the offerings that they're offering up, all of that is to serve as a copy and a shadow of the real thing. If you've studied philosophy at all, you might think he sounds a little bit like Plato. 
Plato had this idea that I don't think is that brilliant, that, hey, this stuff, this physical world that you see, it doesn't last forever, so it's not even really real. It's just kind of a picture, a form of the ideal that is off in some other place somewhere. The author of Hebrews is not saying that. He's not saying those Levitical priests right there are not actually real. He's not saying their priesthood is not really real. He's not even saying that it's bad. Who's the one who told them to build the tabernacle? Who's the one who assigned that the Levites would be the priest? All of that came from God. So he's not saying that it's fake, and he's not saying that it's bad. He's simply saying that all along, the system of worship commanded by God in the law of Moses has been a temporary and incomplete picture of the true salvation that was to come. I learned a lot about shadows when one of my sons, I can't name them anymore. They used to be very proud when they show up in a sermon. Now they're ashamed, so I won't tell you. But one of my sons uh, taught me a lot about shadows because I, I looked out one day. He was about three years old, and he was running around the church parking lot in broad daylight, screaming, weeping, just trying to evade something. I couldn't figure out what it was, and so we run out, and I'm thinking, there's a bee chasing my son. There's a snake on the ground. There's a pterodactyl in the sky. What, what is happening to you? What is going on? And so we go out, and we figure out what he's running from. He's running from the dark person on the ground. It's chasing him. I heard, I've heard people say that. That kid's afraid of his own shadow. What does that mean? Well, it means sometimes kids are afraid of their shadow. <laughs> Simple. Saw so a, a clear depiction of this. And so we had to stop, stop my son, grab his shoulders, and explain to him and just show him, like, look, that on the ground, that's you. That's not really you, like you are you, but it's from you. Like, raise your hand. Look. See? The black shadow, the shadow moves. Do this. See? It's okay. That's you. It's from the sun. I don't understand the science of it. I'm a history teacher, but there's something <laughs> happening there that's putting this shadow on the ground. And then, hey, we're okay. In the same way, the tabernacle, the priests, the blood sacrifices to atone for sins, they were pointing to something greater and better, something that was truer. And that real thing is Jesus. So now let's get to that big rabbit. The idea that is so powerful in the author's mind that when he thinks of it, he gets knocked off course and has to talk about it a while. Why is Jesus better than all that you've left behind no matter the cost? We see in verse 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Why is Jesus better? Because he brings in a better covenant that is enacted on better promises. That means that with the arrival of Jesus Christ, when his feet hit the earth in human form, 
It is the best time in history to relate to the God of the universe. A covenant is a binding agreement which provides an established basis for interaction between its parties. A covenant is a binding agreement which provides an established basis for interaction between its parties. In other words, it's a promise for how two people or two groups of people are going to get along. Here's how we're going to treat each other. I promise. I promise, you promise, this is how we're going to be together. And there are many covenants or promises like this in the Bible. And there are different kinds. Some of them are unconditional which are kind of one-way promises from God, where he says, this is how I'm going to treat you, period. And there are also unconditional promises, where God says, this is how I'm going to treat you, and this is how you're going to treat me. If you fail to do what I've commanded, then this relationship or this uh, covenant is going to be severed. And we see a lot of covenants. Um, There are just a few that come to mind immediately. I think of, of the covenant with Noah in Genesis 8. That is an unconditional covenant, one-way covenant. God destroys the entire world with a flood because of sin. And then after it's over, God promises, he makes a covenant. He says, Noah, remember what just happened with the flood? Yeah, I built a boat for a hundred and some years. Um, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to destroy the earth like that again. And my proof of it is the rainbow. Okay, so when it starts to rain next time, you're going to panic and think that you don't have time to build another boat, but I want you to look up at the rainbow and see the pretty colors and be happy. Okay, I'm not going to do that again. I promise. That's an unconditional covenant. Uh, He makes a covenant similar to that with Abraham. He promises Abraham uh, that... I am going to make your name great. I'm going to make your family huge. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to curse your enemies. And the best part is that I'm going to bless the whole world through your family. That is an unconditional covenant. God makes a similar covenant with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he tells David, you will always have a descendant on the throne. Your throne will be established forever. But when the author of Hebrews speaks of of the need for a new covenant, he's not talking about those covenants. He's not talking about an unconditional covenant. God will not break those. He's talking about a conditional covenant, the Mosaic covenant that he made at Mount Sinai with the Israelites and Moses. This covenant came with stipulations which could be broken on the human side of the equation, which would render it useless. And so the Mosaic covenant, you can uh, check me out later if you want to. Uh, I'm not going to read from this, but at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 28, and at the end of Leviticus, in chapter 26, you get a rundown of the blessings and the curses. So after God gives them all of these laws that they are to obey, at the end, he says, okay, now here's how the covenant works. If you obey these commandments, then these are all of the blessings that are going to come to you. And they're very specific, lots of blessings. It sounds wonderful. And then he turns it over and he says, however, if you disobey my commands, here come the curses. This is what will befall you. And you read the curses and they're awful. Like, whoa, 
God is serious about this covenant. But there were whisperings from the prophets of God that a new covenant, a new promise of how God relate to his people was on the way. And this promise shows up that we'll see today at It may be really an odd time, but I guess when you think about it, probably the best time. The promise shows up just as God is carrying out the curses. He's carrying out the punishment on the kingdom of Judah for not keeping the law of Moses. And so in the 6th century BC, roughly 580 years before Jesus Christ is born as a man, The prophet Jeremiah sees a new covenant in the distance, and he sees it just as God's very instrument, the human instrument for carrying out these curses, the Babylonian army, just as they are banging on the gate of Jerusalem to capture the king of Judah, to kill all of his sons, to gouge out his eyes, to burn down God's temple, to fill the streets with blood, and to send the rest off to Babylon in exile. It was a pretty bad time. They were finding out that God kept his promise, even in the hard things. And so Jeremiah says this, recorded here in Hebrews chapter 8. It is the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. It comes directly from Jeremiah chapter 31, but we'll read here in Hebrews 8. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the greatest of them to the least. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. Move over, shadow covenant. The real covenant has arrived in Jesus Christ. And you can see in verse 10 that the goal of the covenant is exactly the same. He says, when he tells Jeremiah that this is coming, the goal is exactly what Moses said at Mount Sinai. He says, the goal is that you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. So that's the end goal of the covenant. But Jeremiah says, or God says through Jeremiah, but that old covenant had a flaw. So you might think, oh, well, God messed up. The flaw is not on God's side. The flaw is seen in verse 9 where he says, For they did not continue in my covenant. The flaw in the covenant was that they did not continue in it. They did not obey God's law. So that doesn't mean that there, are, there weren't any men or women in the entire Old Testament who loved and obeyed God. 
to the best of their abilities. That's not what Jeremiah is saying. I think Jeremiah would include himself as one of those people who loved and sought to obey God. In a few chapters in Hebrews 11, we'll see a whole list of Old Testament saints who were saved by the grace of God through their faith in God's promises, just like we are. But those Old Testament believers were the exception in Israel. They were not the rule. God even came up with a name for the people in God's people who were actually really God's people. He called them the remnant. There was always this group of people within Israel who actually really loved God and trusted Him. But even those Old Testament saints, when it came to obeying God's law, they all fell short. Even though some of them lived before the law was revealed at Sinai, like Abraham, we can look at Abraham's life, and we did, and see areas where he fell short and did not disobey or did not obey God. In fact, in Hebrews 11, the thing that all of those saints are lauded for is not their law-keeping, but their faith. So the real question becomes, how does the new covenant eliminate the flaw of the old? In other words, how are God's people going to continue in the covenant this time? And the short answer is beautiful. The answer is that God will keep us in. God will keep us in this covenant. Why do I say that? Because six times in this passage, God says, I will, I will, I will. What does it say we will do? Well, it doesn't say anything except the implication is that we will receive from God. And what is it that we will receive from God that will enable us to remain in His covenant? What we receive is new hearts. And according to the Old Testament, we need them. I'll just rattle off a few of the greatest hits of how wonderful your heart is and how you should follow it at all times. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Doesn't get worse than that. So, Noah, would you say we should listen to our hearts? No. I don't need another boat. (laughs) Jeremiah 17, 9, the guy who is foretelling us right now of this new covenant, this is what he says in chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So, Jeremiah, we should listen to our hearts. No, Babylonians will gouge your eyes out. Don't listen to your heart, listen to God's word. Isaiah 29, verse 13, Jesus quotes this one to the Pharisees. Isaiah said, or God said through Isaiah, This people draw near me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. They're saying the right stuff. They're saying churchy things, but their hearts 
or far from God. And Jeremiah tells us that God will make our hearts new in three distinct ways. And so the first way that God will make our hearts new, the the aspect of the new heart, is that God will give us obedient hearts. He'll give us obedient hearts. I see this in verse 10, where he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. What does that mean? It means that we will not only know what God wants us to do, but we will desire to do it. We will want to do it. We will even love and delight to do what God commands. The law of Moses was not carved on their hearts and on their minds. The law of Moses was carved on stone tablets. And when Moses sprinkled calf's blood on the people of Israel in Exodus 24 to seal the covenant, what they said was the the Israelites cried out and they said, all that God tells us, all that God has commanded, we will do it. That's what they said. Did they do it? No. But Moses told them in Deuteronomy 6, he said, These laws that I give you today shall be on your hearts. You need to study them. You need to teach them diligently to your kids. You need to write them on your forehead. You need to write them on your hand. You need to put them on your doorpost. When you get in the car, you need to talk about God's laws. When you're sitting in the living room, you need to talk about God's laws. When you go to bed at night, you need to study what God has said. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And then he goes on to say, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And these practices are still live for New Testament Christians. I would not tell you not to memorize Scripture. I would not tell you not to speak of the laws of God and teach them. How are we supposed to make disciples? How are we supposed to be disciples if we are not studying, drinking deeply and often from the Word of God and His commands? But without new hearts, without hearts filled with love for God, for His commandments, No amount of willpower or memorization or brilliant teaching can bring about your obedience. What we need instead is heart surgery. That's exactly how God described it through the prophet Ezekiel on the other side of the exile. He's writing from Babylon, and God says this to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22 through 28. I won't go clear up to 22. I'll start in 26. It says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. There's that covenant again inklings of the new covenant, but the difference is that we will have a new heart where God causes us to obey his commands. It's similar to what Jesus said to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in John chapter 3. Nicodemus knew the Bible. Jesus even referred to him as the teacher of Israel, and he kept saying things like, oh, it's interesting. You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things. Jesus commanded him, he says, 
Nicodemus, I don't care how much Bible you know, you must be born again. And being born again is not a human action. It's not a decision of the will. Being born again is a miraculous gift of God. When under the power of the Holy Spirit, we believe the good news that Jesus Christ was God's Son and came to die for our sin. And He sends the Holy Spirit, God Himself, to come and live within us and dwell forever. And the Holy Spirit does not come into the new believer just to hang out because you're neat. The Holy Spirit comes into us to transform us. And He doesn't just come into a few of us. That's the pattern in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit comes upon certain people. So, Samson, kind of a doofus. I like girls and I'm strong. That's Samson. The Holy Spirit comes on him and he is slain God's enemies. He is slain the wicked to the glory of God. The, the Holy Spirit comes on Saul. Saul, oh, not a great king. But the Holy Spirit was upon him to do good things. He left King Saul. That's why when he comes upon David and David sins, David says, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He saw that happen to Saul. The Holy Spirit obviously filled the prophets' mouths, but the Holy Spirit was not dwelling with all of the Israelites. The new covenant isn't like that. That's why he says later, uh, from the least to the greatest, every single Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has come to dwell inside of you. And his work is to transform you. He is making you different. Not completely, but continually. I believe that so strongly from the teaching of the New Testament that I can honestly say to you that if since you have become a Christian, you have not changed, God has not made you more and more like Jesus, if there's no change that has occurred in your life, then I would tell you that you probably are not really a Christian because the Holy Spirit does not leave us as we are. He changes us. From one degree to another, we start to want what God wants. We start to hate what God hates. We are annoyed by our sin. Yes, we still sin, but we hate it. And we wish God would just take away all our sinful desires forever. We look at the world decaying, ruined by sin, and it breaks our hearts. And we have hearts that cry out for God's kingdom to come and for His will to be done on the earth, not just heaven, but on the earth too. That's what we want. Jesus is better than Moses and Abraham and the angels and the priests because only Jesus can give us obedient hearts. We still disobey. Sometimes we do, but at the core of a New Testament Christian, what you will find is a son and daughter of God the Father who wants to please our dad. He gives us obedient hearts. Second part of the covenant, he gives us knowing hearts. In verse 11, this one probably seems weird to you. Sounds weird to me. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. All believers in the new covenant community that we call the church 
All Christians know God. That's a big deal. We know God. Now, this passage doesn't mean that we don't need each other, that we don't need to be taught. He's just saying Christians don't need to stand around and teach each other this fact. Hey, you need to know the Lord because you're a Christian. That would be a redundant thing. I'm a Christian. I know the Lord. That's not an aspect that we have to teach one another. Know the Lord. This doesn't mean we don't need the church and that it's just me and Jesus. That's not biblical Christianity. But it does mean that the essence of being a Christian is being a person who knows God. That's how Jesus himself describes it in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3. He says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To be a Christian is to know God directly, like a person. Just like you know any other person, you have a relationship, you know them, they know you. That's what it's like to know God, because God is a person who is known by His children. Now, you can't come away from the Old Covenant. You can't come away from the Old Testament thinking, man, all these Israelites really know and love God. They're awesome. That's not the picture that you get. In fact, one of my favorite Israelites ever, the prophet Elijah, he's walking around the kingdom of Israel. Ahab is the king. He married a sweet lady named Jezebel. There are no Jezebels in the crowd. You don't use that name because, yeah. Um, Jezebel is the queen. She's brought in the worship of foreign gods. And Elijah's walking around. And he actually, he has a great victory on Mount Carmel. Then he goes away and he finds a cave. And this is what he prays to God. He says, it's a sweet little prayer. God, kill me now. Why does Elijah want God to kill him right now? Because as he looks around who are supposed to be the people of God, his assessment is that he says, I'm the only one. That's what he said to God. I'm the only one who knows you. I'm the only real believer. The remnant has come down to one person. Kill me now, I quit, I give up. And so God says, "Uh, actually, that's not true. There aren't a lot of you, but there are more of you than you think, Elijah. In the Gospels, Jesus speaks to the people who represent God to everyone else. He speaks to priests. He speaks to the Pharisees, the holy ones, the people who take the God of the Bible seriously. Those with the most biblical knowledge, who knew the law the best, who worked the hardest to follow it. Jesus said to them, hey guys, guess what? You don't know God. Because I have come from God, and if you knew the Father, you would know me. So even though you think you know a lot about God... You do not know God at all. That's not how it is under the new covenant. Everyone will know God. That is his promise. If you have faith in Christ, have turned from your sin, you will know God. Christians are not merely those who know about God. They know him. And then the final piece of the promises, the better promises of the new covenant, a better covenant is that God will give us clean hearts. Verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins 
no more. Mercy. Mercy means that God does not give us what we deserve for our sin. When it says that he will remember our sins no more, he's not literally saying that, he, that God is forgetful. Like, I just I can't remember anything bad that you've done, and I'm the all-knowing being in the universe. No, God doesn't forget what we've done. What it means is that our criminal record has been burned. The way Paul describes it is that all the bad things that we've done have been nailed to the cross. And our sentence for our sin was carried out as Jesus Christ hung on the cross. And as his Father poured out all of his righteous, holy wrath and fury onto his own Son. And Paul describes it this way in Romans 8, 1. He says, And now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a believer, that makes your heart flutter a little bit (laughs) to know that there is no condemnation that awaits you. Because if you are like me, being a human, I deserve condemnation from God. That's what I have earned from Him. I have committed evil deeds. And I have said worse things than I've done, and there's even one worse. I've thought much more evil things than I've ever said or done. My heart is filthy. But the blood of Jesus Christ has washed me clean. I don't carry around the guilt and shame for what I've done because God says that I am a new creature. God says that I am his son. God says that I'm not a slave to sin anymore, but someone who's been set free. And the only one who often tells me otherwise is in reality a liar And he awaits an inevitable, fiery destruction. So I don't really need to care what he says. His word is not true. God's word is true. The sacrifices are over. The last drop of blood was shed. And we are forgiven. And that forgiveness is not just a clean slate that says, okay, I've covered all the bad things. You're a clean slate. Now let's see how you do. From here, that's not how the new covenant works. I am forgiven for the sins that I have committed in the past. I am forgiven for the sins that I will commit today, and I am forgiven for the sins in the future. And that doesn't make me that doesn't make me want to sin. It makes me want to obey because God is so good. So does the cost of our Christian faith outweigh the gift from God. If all of those things Jeremiah said are true, if that's what we receive in the new covenant, hearts that can obey his commands, a relationship with God where we actually know him, and if God promises us total and complete forgiveness, not because we've obeyed his laws, but because we've acknowledged that we can't and put our faith in his son who did obey the law and died in our place. If that's what we have from God, 
Why would we ever look back? What could God possibly take from us in this life? What trial could come to our lives because of our Christianity that would turn us away from Him? The first Christians were looking at Judaism. They had laws they couldn't obey. That's what was in their rearview mirror. But it was a life that was easier, socially speaking, and now they're being persecuted. But you're not looking back at that. What's in your rearview mirror? Maybe it's another religion that you've left. Maybe you've left behind no religion at all. Maybe in your rearview mirror you see trying and trying and trying to please God and do everything right so that you in your mind can manipulate him and control him and make you give good things so that he will owe you something because of your performance. Or maybe you're doing the opposite of that and just living in full tilt sin. Whatever your heart desires, that's what you do. Wherever you're coming from, whatever's in the rearview mirror, it's not worth it. Jesus is better. And what's causing you to look back anyway? Are you suffering for your faith? Well, Jesus said that we would, right? He said, the world hates me, they're going to hate you. That's never going to change. But I would argue the suffering is so small compared to what we've been given. God, take away my reputation in the world, but don't take your laws off my heart and mind. Give me obedience. God, you can take my house and my money you can take my cars and my clothes, but don't take your friendship away from me. Don't take your presence. Give me yourself. God, take away my safety and my easy life. You can even take away my friends and my family, but don't take away my clean, forgiven heart. There's no comparison. Give me the new covenant. Give me Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. What a silly word. I don't know what else to say. We praise you. You've given us so much, and we don't deserve any of it. We take the supper that you commanded us to take today because we don't ever want to forget what all of these riches that you've given us cost you. You gave your body and you shed your blood, blood of the new covenant so that we can know you, so that we can obey you, and so that we could be washed clean. We are so thankful, God. Help us not just to say thank you as we take this meal, but help us to live lives of thanks. Help us to show others the same forgiveness that you've shown us. Help others to want to know you because of the way that we know you and the way that that causes us to live, God. Your gospel is beautiful. You are beautiful. Use your church body to attract others to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
the Lord's Supper is not for everyone, but if you've listened to that description of the new covenant today and you said, that's me, my sins are forgiven, I know the Lord, I want to obey him, I'm so thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, that means you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and so we invite you to take this family meal. However, if you've heard all of that, and you thought, that sounds as far away from me as I can imagine, I don't think my sins are forgiven, and I carry that weight around. I don't think that I know God, even though I might have all these Bible facts, and I don't want to obey God. If that's you, we don't want you to take the Lord's Supper today. We want you to take Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn it. He gives himself to you. He's already done it. So if you're not a believer today, will you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ? Come and take the body and blood of Christ. Let's remember what he's done for us. You can have 
You guys stand with us, please. In the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, give me
this morning as we head out, we're going to sing a song um, building off of the idea that it was only the blood of Jesus that could cover um, what we needed. So as you guys leave today, let's sing There's Power in the Blood. Would you be free from the burden of sin there's power in the blood power in the blood would you or evil a victory win there's wonderful power in the blood there is power power wonder working sins. 